You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. Time is now 5.59. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from the Portland State University Hatfield School of Government, offering a new master's degree in nonprofit leadership for those who believe in the power of collective action for social change. More information online at pdx.edu slash Hatfield School. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. The Personnel Committee will meet on the second Monday of each month at 6 p.m. Tune in to KBU on July 4th through the 7th for our live broadcast from the 32nd Annual Waterfront Blues Festival. We'll start the broadcast from the Waterfront Blues Festival on Thursday, July 4th at noon, and broadcast the fest every day from noon through 10 p.m. Again, that's the Waterfront Blues Festival, the largest celebration of blues, soul, funk, and rhythm and blues west of the Mississippi, July 4th through the 7th from noon to 10 p.m. here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. As the nation prepares to mark the July 4th holiday, usually with picnics, fireworks, spending time with friends and family, and basically looking forward to a long holiday weekend, today we look into the deeper meaning of the July 4th holiday and its significance. From the words of Frederick Douglass to the poems of Langston Hughes, we capture a vastly different reflection of July 4th from the one generally promoted. Frederick Douglass asked, what is July 4th to me? Langston Hughes asked, what is America to me? The same questions are likely being asked by those stuck in concentration camp facilities at the U.S. border, deprived of even the most basic needs. To those who have to worry about walking down the street, much less driving a vehicle while black or brown. To indigenous peoples whose youth have the highest suicide rates than any other in the nation and whose communities are the most impoverished in the United States. To trans women, particularly those who are black, 11 of whom were murdered this year. To poor white people in Appalachia and around the country who may not yet realize that their self-interests lie with those they consider the other, not the 1%. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is making this year's July 4th all about himself, ignoring long-standing tradition and organizing what basically will be a Trump rally incorporating a military parade. Let us go now to a clip about the controversy over July 4th, 2019. Our country's Past birthday. U.S. presidents have traditionally kept a low profile on July 4th. The President Donald Trump 
doesn't do low profile. We're going to have planes going overhead, the best fighter jets in the world, and other planes too. And we're going to have some tanks stationed outside. Trump on Monday said he plans to display military hardware on Washington's National Mall as part of a pumped-up 4th of July celebration that will also feature a speech from the Lincoln Memorial, flyovers by fighter jets and Air Force One, and an extended fireworks display. The song and dance is a significant departure from the nonpartisan, broadly patriotic programs that typically draw hundreds of thousands of people to the monuments on the 4th of July. Democrats in Congress have accused Trump of hijacking the event to turn it into a glorified campaign rally, saying he's using the military as props. They also questioned how much the event will cost the cash-strapped National Park Service. Trump has pushed for a military parade in Washington since he marveled at the Bastille Day military parade in Paris in 2017. To a large extent, because of what I witnessed, we may do something like that on July 4th in Washington, down Pennsylvania. (laughs) His administration postponed a parade that had been planned for Veterans Day in November of 2018 after costs ballooned to $90 million. The Interior Department, which oversees the event, has not said how much it'll cost. Local officials have said the heavy military equipment could damage city streets. Be pretty careful with the tanks because the roads have a tendency not to like to carry heavy tanks, so we have to put them in certain areas. Protesters on the 4th will have props of their own. The anti-war group Code Pink said it secured permits to fly a baby Trump blimp during his speech. All righty. And meanwhile, um, Trump in his self-absorption, is he reflecting a truth about the United States, one that is difficult to face? And was 1776 a true revolution? And if so, for whom? If it wasn't for some, could it truly have been a revolution for all? Our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. A ticking time bomb is how one senior manager describes conditions at severely overcrowded migrant detention centers at the border. The investigation was carried out by the Office of the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security. It confirms the severe overcrowding, lack of sanitation, and violations of time limits on holding adults and children. All these conditions were already reported by attorneys for migrants and Congress members who visited the detention facilities. The report contains photos showing women and children laying on the floor with silver mylar blankets, body to body with barely any room to move. The report says some adults were held in standing room only conditions for a week. Children were not provided hot meals as required. The chair of the House Oversight Committee, Elijah Cummings, says top Homeland Security officials have been summoned to testify before his committee next week on the treatment of migrant children. Tens of thousands of people rallied nationwide in nearly 200 cities, 
calling for the closure of immigrant detention facilities. Their demands also included a cutoff of additional funding for detention and deportation and for the reunification of families. About 1,000 protested outside the San Francisco office of California Senator Dianne Feinstein, then marched to the office of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I'm holding a sign of a child, Felipe Alonso Gomez, who died on Christmas Eve 2018 at age 8. It's the same age as my son. My son was holding the sign. He didn't receive proper medical care. This is a crime against humanity, and we need to stop this now. People are suffering. They're sleeping on concrete. They're sleeping on floors. They're, they're filthy. They're not allowed to shower. They're not given food and nutrients. People are there with babies. A federal judge says the Constitution requires that migrants who are seeking asylum have the chance to be released from custody while they pursue their cases. The federal judge in Seattle blocked a Trump administration policies that would keep asylum seekers locked up. Federal Judge Marsha Peckman ruled people who are detained after entering the country without authorization to seek protection are entitled to bond hearings. Attorney General William Barr announced in April the government would no longer offer such bond hearings, but instead keep asylum seekers in custody. That policy was due to take effect on July 15th. The Justice Department is expected to appeal the decision. The Commerce Department has decided to start printing census forms without a controversial question asking about citizenship. It marks a reversal from President Trump's statements that he would ask for a delay in the census so the legal battle over the citizenship question could play out. The U.S. Supreme Court last week halted the addition of the question, saying the Commerce Department's justification for its inclusion was contrived. Legal battles would have played out for weeks, if not months. Civil rights groups and states likely would have sued over any attempt to delay the census. California was among the many states and civil rights groups which sued over inclusion of the citizenship question. The state and others said it would depress responses by immigrant communities, leading to a decline in federal funding based on the population count and on political representation in Congress. Attorney General Javier Becerra welcomed the Trump administration's decision to drop its efforts. This fight was hard won. And this is a major win against this administration. It's a win for our nation, for our democracy, and for everyone in this country around the world. Around the world is watching now, not just in this country, but around the world, watching what we did here in California and some of the other states that also filed lawsuits to make sure that we let everyone be counted. But the California Attorney General warned the Trump administration is underfunding the effort to get a complete count. California's governor has said the state will invest $187 million of its own in census outreach. The same military jurors who acquitted a Navy SEAL of murder in the killing of a wounded Islamic State prisoner under his care in Iraq in 2017 will return to court today for further deliberations. They'll decide whether Edward Gallagher should serve any jail time for the single charge he was convicted of, posing with the 17-year-old's corpse. The prosecution unsuccessfully argued Gallagher was incriminated by his own text messages and photos, including one of him holding the dead militant up by the hair and clutching a knife in his other hand. Got him with my hunting knife, Gallagher wrote in a text with the photo. The defense said it was just gallows humor. 
and pointed out that almost all platoon members who testified against him had also posed with the corpse. I'm Eileen Alfandiri. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. The U.S. Revolutionary War lasted from 1775 to 1783 and was fought between uh, the U.K. or Great Britain and its 13 colonies uh, in the United States. Uh, what well, that was before there was the United States. It was just the 13 colonies. U.S. independence leaders protested against taxation without representation, followed the Stamp Act, and escalated into boycotts, which culminated in 1773 with the Sons of Liberty destroying a shipment of tea in Boston Harbor. Uh, now, we are told that this is really what the... Uh, War of Independence, so to speak, was about, but we'll be discussing discussing that and finding out if that was really the case. Um, Britain responded by closing Boston Harbor and passing a series of punitive measures against Massachusetts Bay Colony. Massachusetts colonists responded with the Suffolk Resolves, and they established a shadow government which wrested control of the countryside from the British Crown. Twelve colonies formed a Continental Congress to coordinate their resistance, establishing committees and conventions that effectively seized power. By July 4, 1776, uh, those known as the Founding Fathers declared independence uh, from Britain. Now, that is uh, very much the narrative uh, that anybody who has likely taken a history class in the United States has heard about the 4th of July. So uh, the on the date 4th of July, independence fighters with the Second Continental Congress declared that the 13 colonies were no longer subordinate to the British crown and announced a free United Republic. Um, now, those independence Fighters, as the script goes, fought for liberty and justice for all, and the American Revolution uh, was seen to as a step forward for humanity. Uh, now, celebrations of the 4th of July became more common as years went by, and in 1870, almost 100 years after the Declaration of Independence was written, Congress first declared July 4th to be a national holiday. Um, but does this narrative paint a complete picture? What's left out? First, we're going to hear the words of Frederick Douglass uh, recited by... Uh, Danny Glover and Frederick Douglass, of course, was an escaped slave who was a, became a prominent um, campaigner uh, against slavery, author, public speaker. He was a fantastic orator. Uh, he became really a leader in the abolitionist uh, movement. And uh, after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation of uh, and the Emancipation Proclamation, and he continued to push for equality and human rights until his death in 1895. But let's hear what Frederick Douglass had to say about July 4th, and again narrated by the actor Danny Glover. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? 
are the great principles of political freedom and the natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God both for your sake and ours that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. But such is not the state of the case. I see it with a sad sense of disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm and stern rebuke, for it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and his crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty in which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and quality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bomb blast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. 
go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despises of the old world, travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. All righty, uh, just incredibly powerful uh, speech. That's a selection uh, from a speech uh, that Frederick Douglass gave on July 5th, not actually on July 4th, but on July 5th, 1852 in Corinthian Hall in Rochester, New York. And he was speaking of all people to the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery uh, Society. Um, so there you have it now, uh, bringing to discuss all of this uh, and spending the hour uh, with us. I'd like to welcome one of our regulars here on our weekly roundtable, Dr. Gerald Horn, who holds the Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published books include White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela, and Jazz, Injustice, Racism, and the Political Economy of the Music. He's also the author of Facing the Rising Sun, African-Americans, Japan, and the Rise of Afro-Asian uh, solidarity. And uh, today we likely will touch on some of his work um, in his uh, book, uh, Negro Comrades of the Crown, African Americans and the British Empire Fight the U.S. Before Emancipation and also the Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America, a remarkable body of work. I don't think there is uh, such a body of work by any historian uh, today, Dr. Gerald Horn. We're happy to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, and again, uh, Dr. Horn, I don't want to forget to remind our audience in Southern California that uh, you will be in Los Angeles on Saturday, July 20th at 2 p.m. at McCarty Memorial Christian Church, which is at 4103 West Adams Boulevard, and he'll be presenting um, his two newest books, and uh, SO on Books is a co-sponsor. Uh, and books will be there. Dr. Horn will sign them. Please go to the kpfk.org uh, website for more information, and you could actually uh, reserve a ticket um, there as well. So we don't want to miss out on a very, very special occasion, Dr. Gerald Horn, with two of his latest books. Um, now, Dr. Horn, uh, just since we just heard part of that uh, Frederick uh, Douglass uh, speech, and later in the hour, I want to play something from Langston Hughes uh, with a similar theme, uh, but you know, much later in history as to where Frederick Douglass uh, was. So, uh, tell us a bit about the context of of Douglass uh, giving this speech. The context of the speech is that in 1852, the United States was then the captain of the international slave trade to Brazil. 
the United States at that particular moment was also busily smuggling enslaved Africans into North America. And in fact, the state of Texas had just joined the Union in 1845, and the state of Texas was independent from Mexico beginning in 1836. It seceded from Mexico because Mexico had moved towards abolition in the previous decade, and rather than accede to the momentous decision, and by the way, Mexico had a president of African descent 180 years before Barack Hussein Obama. I'm speaking of Vicente Guerrero. But the settlers in Texas, led by Stephen F. Austin and Sam Houston, seceded because they wanted to continue the slave trade. And in fact, the Lone Star flag of Texas could be found off the shores of Angola during the time of Texas independence, could be found off the shores of Brazil as well. But what happened was that Texas could not stand up to the abolitionist pressure exerted by revolutionary Haiti and by abolitionist Britain, and therefore crawled into the Union in 1845, where it has been ever since. So that's part of the context for Frederick Douglass's remarks. But of course, the wider context is what you mentioned in your prefatory remarks, which is to say that uh, in 1776, the United States, excuse me, the 13 colonies seceded to form the United States of America, and they seceded from Britain. I think there were two major triggers. One was the so-called Royal Proclamation of 1763, where London expressed distaste for continuing to move west from the Atlantic seaboard, fighting Native Americans and turning over the land to real estate speculators like George Washington, real estate speculator number one. And secondly, 1772, London had moved to abolish slavery. Uh, that is to say, African slavery in England itself, quickly followed by companion decisions in Scotland and other members of the United Kingdom. And there was a fear on the part of the slaveholders, led by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, James Madison, the so-called founding fathers, that this decision would leapfrog the Atlantic, jeopardizing their immense fortunes, and rather than accede to that, they went to war. Not surprisingly, on the eve of the U.S. Civil War, 1860-1861, the most valuable property in this new nation, the United States of America, was precisely the property embedded in enslaved Africans. Enslaved Africans being both capital and labor, and as you know, the southern states wanted to perpetuate slavery forevermore, and they went to war to ensure that what happened, there had been pressure, particularly international pressure, by revolutionary Haiti and abolitionist Britain on the government in Washington, D.C., and that helped to trigger this U.S. Civil War, which led to emancipation, quickly followed, as you know, by a system known as Jim Crow, a neo-apartheid system of horrendous racist, racist segregation. Okay, Dr. Horn, we're going to dig into, uh, uh, you touch on a number of, of things there, and one of, and we'll dig into those as, as the show uh, goes on. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is there's a lot of controversy over the meaning of the Declaration of Independence, and certainly Frederick Douglass himself w- was, uh, his interpretation was that, well, this is really a- an anti 
anti-slavery uh, document. Also in the civil rights era, you have uh, Martin Luther King and others uh, referring it, trying to reclaim it. And the preamble, of course, uh, a lot of people know that by heart. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they're endowed by their creator with certain and amiable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of course, we know that in the Constitution itself, you know, black people were not considered a full uh, human being, right? Uh, nevertheless, um, you can't blame abolitionists and, and freedom fighters, uh, anti-racists, for really uh, trying to reclaim that. But I, I, I wanted your thoughts on this because this came before the French Revolution um, and the French Revolution dates, I'd have to look again to see, uh, 1789, uh, right? And also before the Haitian um, and, and, the, and the Haitian Revolution, um, we kind of put those together. I mean, there was the U.S. Revolution and uh, the, the French, Rev followed by the French Revolution, followed by the ha Haitian Revolution, all of which had an impact on the discussion of race and slavery, you know, within the United States. So your thought about this Declaration of Independence and uh, the preamble, do you think that people are right with trying to claim that part of it as an anti-slavery uh, document? Well, I understand why there, why there were those who sought to reframe the Declaration of Independence and, in fact, the U.S. Constitution as anti-slavery documents. But I'm afraid to say that in 2019, those positions are no longer sustainable. If you look closely at the Declaration of Independence, for example, one of the uh, indictments against London and against King George was supposedly that London was helping to stir up Native Americans against the settlers. And of course, as I already mentioned, uh, London was reluctant to keep subsidizing these settlers in terms of their wars against Native Americans. And just as the Africans in 1776 going forward disproportionately and overwhelmingly fought against the settlers, you could say the same to a degree about the Native Americans themselves. Now, I understand why subsequent generations, in order to fight a political battle, might have tried to reframe these documents, the Constitution Declaration of Independence, but as noted, that, that's really no longer sustainable. With regard to the so-called Age of Revolution, that is to say 1776 North America followed by 1789 France, 1791 to 1804, the Haitian Revolution, I would reframe that as well. I would say that the settlers in North America would not have won their battle against the superpower that was London without being subsidized by the French, French royalists, and the French royalists then spent so much money that the French government became bankrupt, which then led to the French Revolution of 1789, and that was a genuine revolution, in my opinion. It helped to trigger the Haitian Revolution 1791, and note today, if you fast forward, in his documentary, uh, Sicko, Michael Moore pointed out that in France, where they have the kind of health care system that we can only yearn for and pine for, you have a government that is afraid of the people, whereas in North America, where supposedly you have this grand revolution, you have people who are afraid of the government. And of course, there is reason to be afraid of this government, particularly tomorrow when you see 
this ultra-righteous manifestation at the Lincoln Memorial led by the 45th U.S. president. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, uh, just in terms of uh, July 4th and the U.S. Um, war for independence from England, uh, from the U.K., Great Britain, as it was known at that time, the sun never sets on the British Empire, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that quickly fell apart. Um, but is the role the role of black people in the Revolutionary War itself? Now, I know that it, there there are two parts to that, and I'd like you to um, to get into that. But before we get into the um, the the black people who were on the side of Britain in this, there were also some black people involved on the side of the. Uh, colonists, the side of the settlers, and uh, there is you hear the name of Crispus Attucks, and and then I read somewhere that there were some Haitians somehow <laughs> uh, uh, that got embroiled in this. Uh, Doctor Horn, have you heard that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, keep in mind that the nation we now call Haiti uh, during the 1776 to 1783 war was a French colony, and as noted, Royalist France supported the settlers against London, and therefore they helped to import Africans from that Caribbean island to fight in Savannah, Georgia. And in fact, there's a monument in Savannah, Georgia, marking the participation of these Africans with regard to fighting the Redcoats. It's no secret, it's no accident that many black people have fought on the wrong side. I mean, you had Buffalo soldiers, for example, after the U.S. Civil War, uh, were at the tip of the spear when Native Americans' land was taken. If you go back before uh, the, the, the so-called revolution, 1676, when you had Bacon's Rebellion, when the settlers were revolting against Britain because, excuse, because they thought that England was not moving rapidly enough to seize the land of Native Americans in Virginia, you had black people who were doing that as well. So the fact that you had had historically misguided black people is no secret. I dare say you probably have some misguided black people in Los Angeles as we speak. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it just seems as though there has been a constant uh, battle really for the soul and the allegiance of those of us who were former slaves. Uh, and I, I frankly think that, you know, when we became Afro-American and, and African-American, for example, we lost the kind of an internationalism uh, when we were just all black folks. You know? <laughs> Before that, a bunch of Negroes uh, in terms of those of us in diaspora and the continent, but that that is another story. Dr. Horn, what we'll do now, because next I want you to get into your thesis, uh, you, uh, your analysis of uh, 1776 being a counter-revolution, but before that, we better take our station break uh, so we don't disturb that discussion. And stay with us, Dr. Horn. We'll be right back. Oh, 
Oh my goodness, one of my favorites, the late great Bob Marley coming in from the cold. Well, we're still trying to do that as people who are oppressed in the U.S. and around the world. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and this is our pre-July 4th show. Not exactly happy 4th of July, but really digging into what the 4th of July has meant um, for uh, those of us um, who uh, are still trying to uh, pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and even recognize that uh, we are all men are created equal. I'm assuming women, um, we have to add into that. And our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. Check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org. And if you are a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook and our handle on Twitter and Instagram at So True Radio. We're also on SoundCloud. And uh, today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Irvine. California in Irvine, uh, California, and internationally, uh, we would like to give a shout out to our listeners in Thailand. Yes, a number of listeners in Thailand. And um, our guest is um, just prolific historian and author, Professor uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, and we're discussing uh, really the 4th of July, the whole. American project, I should say United States uh, project, and specifically the uh, Revolutionary War, really the War of Independence of the colonies from the UK, Great Britain, as it was known at the time. So, Dr. Horn, um, you have written two very provocative books here, uh, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America, and also Negro Comrades of the Crown, African Americans in the British Empire Fight the U.S. Before Emancipation. And I would like you to explain why that is. Well, first of all, take the second book that you mentioned. Uh, the centerpiece of that book is the War of 1812. In some ways, it was a replay of 1776. Your listeners may know the War of 1812 because of the U.S. Star-Spangled Banner, which comes out of the War of 1812, uh, written by the slave owner, Francis Scott Key, who remarkably, in his third stanza, singles out and denounces the black population of North America not least because the black population during this time of the War of 1812 in the United States was trying to take over Canada and oust it from London's jurisdiction, the black population stood with the Redcoats, as did a significant percentage of the Native American population as well, including the great Native American warrior Tecumseh, who in fact died fighting alongside the Redcoats against the settlers. During the War of 1812, more specifically in August 1814, you had the Redcoats and black people in Washington, D.C. help to burn down that city, burn down the White House, send President James Madison and his garrulous spouse Dolly fleeing into the streets, one step ahead of the posse. And then the black rebels were transported on British ships to Trinidad and Tobago, a then British colony, where their descendants continued to reside. This was a replay in some ways of the so-called Revolutionary War of 1776. And I should also draw a parallel with the conflict that led to the creation of Zimbabwe, 
Recall that the settlers, European settlers in what was then called Rhodesia in 1965, they wanted to secede from the British Empire because they thought London was moving towards African-majority rule, and they fought a bloody war and lost, just like they said, that is to say the settlers said, in southern Rhodesia, that they were walking in the footsteps of 1776 because they realized that those settlers had fought a war to secede from the British Empire because London was moving towards abolition of slavery, or so the settlers thought. It's interesting to note that the settlers in Southern Africa have been condemned, I guess because they lost, whereas the settlers in North America have been saluted, I guess because they won. Right, and uh, I also have to um, remind people, too, about, you know, we hear about the the founding uh, fathers uh, all of the time, and um, from films like 12 Years a Slave and and other slave narratives, we understand the depth of the brutality of chattel slavery in the United States and and throughout the Americas, but... um, Slave-owning presidents, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, Andrew Jackson, Martin uh, Van Buren, William Harris, Henry Harrison, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there are quite a lot of them there, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. So when people go on and, and wax about, you know, practically in, in you know, sacred terms about the founding fathers. You know, we we also have uh, to remember that. I I do happen to think that it is a step in the right direction to say that we are indeed, uh, the the Haitians have a, a saying that says, a human being is a human being. And if you could go back to that preamble again, where they say all men are created equal, I mean, I, I happen to think the Haitian uh, saying a human being is a human being gets uh, much more to that point and, and definitely is true, recognizing the humanity of each and every one of us, no matter uh, the color of our skin. Um, so Dr. Horn, you spoke about um, the Negro comrades of, of the Crown and, and the War of 1812, and um, now the counter-revolution of 1776, because you're saying that 1776 was actually not a revolution, but a counter-revolution. Why? I say that because it led to the expansion of slavery in North America, It led to the United States ousting Britain from captaining the international slave trade. As early as the 1790s, U.S. slave traders were responsible for bringing the bulk of Africans, enslaved Africans, to Cuba. By the 1830s, U.S. nationals were responsible for bringing the bulk of enslaved Africans to Brazil, which, of course, was the widest and deepest slave market in the Americas. And even if you look at the alleged signal contributions of this conflict with London, speaking of the U.S. Constitution, uh, look at the centerpiece of the U.S. Constitution, actually the Bill of Rights, which comes after the Constitution. I'm speaking of the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of religion. It's important to have a materialist analysis of freedom of religion. That is to say that the settlers needed more bodies. They needed more Europeans in order to confront rebellious Africans and rambunctious Native Americans. And so, therefore, 
they decided to break away from the religious conflicts of Europe, particularly Protestant versus Catholic and Christian versus Jewish, and rebrand these pan-European settlers as being white. And so certainly it's fair to say that those who were white or defined as white benefited from the ouster of the Native Americans from their land and the enslavement of the Africans. But if you look at the Cherokees, for example, who tried to assimilate assimilate into Christianity, assimilate even into enslaving Africans, despite this assimilation in the 1820s and 1830s, Mr. Trump's favorite president, Andrew Jackson, ousted the Cherokees, this indigenous population, from the southeast quadrant of Native Americans on the so-called Trail of Tears, where they had to walk and stumble hundreds of miles to Oklahoma, which was supposed to be the land of the Indians as long as the rivers shall flow and the grass shall grow. And of course, that promise was not kept <laughs> either. So in any case, it's important to recognize that the United States was a pan-European project. It was an expression of white nationalism. And it has only been because of adroit organizing by those of us not defined as white, not to mention international solidarity, that we have been able to get to this point where we are today. And if you look at what's about to happen tomorrow on the National Ball and at the Lincoln Memorial, you would suspect that we're about to take some gigantic leaps backward. That's right. And uh, we can't recall, can't forget also that the universities um, who benefited from slavery from William and Mary Princeton, Columbia University, Rutgers, Georgetown, Brown, uh, Harvard, and many others, not only from the slave trade in the United States, but throughout the, the British uh, colonies, including my island, Barbados, and companies that benefited from slavery include Lehman Brothers, Aetna. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, USA Today has found that their own parent company, E.W. Scripps and Gannett, had links uh, to the slave trade, New York Life Insurance Company. I'm sure a lot of that will be looked at um, following the hearing that happened a couple of weeks ago in Capitol Hill on reparations um, for descendants of people enslaved in the United States. Of course, CARICOM, the Caribbean nations, they also have a, a suit actually going and a movement for reparations. But theirs is not only limited to uh, people of African descent who were enslaved, but also indigenous people um, in the uh, Caribbean uh, region. And, and important that we we all look at that. But, um, you know, Dr. Horn, um, just getting back, I mean, it's true, no doubt, that the 1776 uh, gave those people who wanted to keep owning slaves, start in, importing slaves, et cetera, uh, more power. But there were also some class divisions. Were they not even among the white settlers themselves? And how did that play itself out within the context of um, the war for independence, Dr. Horn? Well, certainly there was. There was class conflict between those who were defined as white. And it's fair to say that that class conflict often bubbled to the surface, particularly when you had the organizing of some of the first unions in the United States, which takes place as early as the 1820s. But I think we should stress that settler colonialism, a term that should be invoked more regularly when discussing these United States of America, 
settler colonialism is a project based upon class collaboration. If you go back, for example, to the early 1600s, when you first had this invasion of North America, this was a class collaborationist project. You had richer Europeans in London who were sponsoring poorer Europeans who would come over and seize the land from the Native Americans and uproot the Native Americans and then make sure that enslaved Africans were brought in to work the land. And I don't think we can understand, for example, the gubernatorial election in 1991 in Louisiana, for example, where a Nazi, David Duke, won a sizable majority of the Euro-American vote, even though he was a Nazi and a Klansman, without understanding this pre-existing history that I've just articulated. Right. Really important, too, when we, we look at what the Trumpers are doing right now. I mean, you know, those who were um, supporting out there uh, protesting in support of children being kept in cages and being deprived of, of food and medicine and, and just the most basic uh, human needs. I mean, you really do see or poor white people across the U.S. who some of whom who still have to figure out that the problem isn't immigrants coming in. It's not black and brown people, but really the 1%, right? Um, so we saw a little bit of that after the um, the Civil War um, with the fusion uh, party and that fusion movement um, uh, bringing together, which was a cross-race movement. And we see that today in the, the new uh, Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for Moral Revival, um, with the Reverend William Barber, a Southern preacher, um, who talks quite a bit about a fusion movement and bringing people uh, together. So we'll see um, um, which side are you on. <laughs> a lot of people have to, you know, have to decide that. But Dr. Horn, what we're going to do now is to uh, fast forward a bit because a lot of people say, well, you're going on about July 4th, a counter-revolution in terms of black people, indigenous people. But that was a long time ago. Okay, so uh, let's forget about it and let's move on. But uh, when we look at the work then of uh, Langston Hughes, um, born in 1902, died in 1967, poet, campaigner, novelist, playwright, uh, one of the earliest innovators of jazz poetry, a leader of the Harlem Renaissance in New York City. And what I'd like to do is to now um, play his poem um, with a narration by uh, Alfre Woodard, Let America Be America again. I'd really like to hear your thoughts on this. Dr. Horn, let's go to that clip now. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. 
day. Who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery's scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog, of mighty crush the weak. Oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on people's lives, we must take back our land again. America! Oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath. America, America will, will be. America will be Dr. Gerald Horn. So here you have uh, Langston Hughes, a beautifully uh, written uh, poem, I, I must say, and talking about immigrants and indigenous people and America never was America to me. You could contrast that with the, uh, what we played of uh, Frederick Douglass uh, earlier in the hour about what does July 4th mean to me. And I basically still have that question, uh, as do many people. So Dr. Horn, it seems as though there is some hope. There is some hope reflected in this poem that the United States could move from a pan-European uh, white nationalist project uh, to a true democracy of uh, some kind. And, um, you know, clearly whose land it is is something that I'm sure indigenous people are going to be continuing uh, to raise up uh, across this country. So just your thoughts on um, what what this reflected. I mean, there was the error that, that Langston um, wrote uh, this particular poem, uh, but also you know, your thoughts on, on the hopefulness or what needs to happen um, for this to move from being a settler colonial uh, project to a true democracy, Dr. Horn. Well, I think Langston Hughes put it very well when he said America was never America to me. It's a place where the mighty crushed the weak and that this situation could only change into a realistic dream if we're able to struggle without illusions. That is to say that we not only have to be determined in terms of our organizing, we have to take advantage of the international situation. That's what our ancestors did in the 19th century when they were allied with abolitionist London and revolutionary Haiti. In fact, Frederick Douglass probably spent more time in abolitionist London than say his 20th century counterpart, Paul Robeson spent in Moscow. And likewise, we were able to escape from the clutches of Jim Crow when we were able to take advantage, not only through adroit organizing, but aligned with national liberation movements, for example, Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana in the first instance, not to mention the Caribbean movements led by people like uh, Michael Manley and Chetty Jagan, for example, and that provided momentum to cause Washington to, re to retreat. But once again, we should not be held down or captivated by this illusions, the kind of illusions that you'll see on the National Mall tomorrow, 
which will be just another expression of white nationalism. Yeah, and an expression of what Langston Hughes, I mean, you referred uh, to what he said in, in the poem, and, and just to read that part, I am the poor white fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog of mighty crush the weak. And it seems as though that is what Trump is, uh, you know, going back to that first clip we played at the start of the hour, attempting to do with his takeover of July 4th and the National Mall, which had become a, a, a kind of place where people go picnic and hang out and watch some fireworks. It's like, who doesn't like to watch fireworks? Right, you know, um, you know, bigger and better perhaps than than New Year's Eve or whatever. But he is really, it seems to me, re-establishing um, what you're saying, Doctor Horn, that this is dog eat dog, mighty crush the weak, so the tanks are coming in, but also that this is reminding people that the United States is a white nationalist project for some, but not for all. Just a quick final thought, Dr. Horn. Well, isn't it remarkable that uh, these issues that we're debating now all implicate white nationalism and or racism? Busing per the Democratic Party debate, Supreme Court decisions on the census and reapportionment, and most of all, what's happening on the border, where Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez has complained justifiably that there are concentration camps now being set up on the border with Mexico that in her estimation, and I think rightly and justifiably, bear more than aroma of fascism to it. And I dare say that that will be the fate of not only people on the border, but many of us in this listening audience, unless and until we organize adroitly in conjunction with international movements. Right. On that note, uh, Dr. Horn, thank you yet again. And we look forward to seeing you on July 20th, Saturday, July 20th. And again, go to kpfk.org for our listeners in Southern California. But we appreciate you and thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. All righty. Um, we are out of time, and um, I'd like to say that uh, Sojourner Truth, we will have uh, new shows for you tomorrow, uh, even though the, the office, KPFK, where we're based, will be closed, uh, and also on Friday. Um, really uh, exciting programming, and tomorrow, rather than doing a happy July 4th kind of thing, um, we're going to be actually looking at the impact of environmental devastation and all also discrimination on people's health. We'll be looking at some of the uh, diseases that are common among uh, people of color, but also some of the challenges that uh, men are facing with their health, women facing in their health. And we'll be featuring uh, Dr. George Teitelbaum, um, who came in studio and spent the hour with us. Really important uh, and useful information for all of us concerned about our health. And then this Coming Friday, we have a, a, a special deep one-hour special on the Sudan, going back to the early history of um, the in the days of Pharaoh and the kingdoms of Cushion and others, going all the way up to what's happening in Sudan today, an uh, epicenter of resistance now on the continent of Africa. Um, but today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner.
Sojourner Truth team, our audio engineer, Mr. T. Teddy Robinson, our assistant producer, uh, Romero Funes, and all who helped to make this show possible. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. My people before me, slave for this country. Now you look me with the scorn. Then you heat up all my corn. We're gonna chase those crazy. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. The time is now 6.58, and up next is Hard Knock Radio. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Andre Gladden's six-month Angelversary on Saturday, July 6th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the intersection of Southeast 96th and Market Street in Portland. On January 6th, Andre Gladden, a 36-year-old black man who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, was shot and killed by a Portland police officer who failed to use de-escalation techniques. Family from California will be coming up for the six-month anniversary memorial event. Again, that's the six-month anniversary of Andre Gladden on Saturday, July 6th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the intersection of Southeast 96th and Market Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio and the Jazz Society of Oregon are thrilled to present the 39th annual Cathedral Park Jazz Festival, July 19, 20, and 21 at Cathedral Park in North Portland. The area's finest jazz, blues, R&B, and Latin musicians will rock the park for three days. PDX Soul, Karen Lovely, King Louie Organ Trio, Devin Phillips, Mel Brown, John Gilmore are just a few of the 15 bands performing this year. That's the 39th annual Cathedral Park Jazz Festival, Portland's longest-running community event, July 19, 20, and 21, under the St. John's Bridge in North Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage, under Community Events. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen... 94.1 Point one. What you see here is history. It's history.